0: payers are powerful. Really, really powerful. I'm Jeff Stewart from Sineos Health Consulting. I'll be joined for the third time by Keith Kelly, who leads Market Access Consulting here at Sineos Health. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Payer Power 3 next on the Sineos Health Podcast. Keith Kelly, welcome back to the Cineo Health Podcast.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here.
0: It's been 18 months, I think, since we last talked about payers. Welcome back for Payer Power number three.
1: Just 18. It feels like longer.
0: Yeah, well, 18 months is what? Uh, times seven. A lot of payer days, I guess. Dog years. <laughs> Dog years. So the two times we've talked have been payer power. Is it
1: now payer week or is it payer more power? That's an interesting place to start. I still think that we're in this aftershocks of healthcare reform from 2009. Mm-hmm. So here I am living in the past, but you know, when you reform the entirety of the U.S. healthcare system with Obamacare, what did that mean for our system, right? You look back at the triple aim, which was cover more people, have better quality, and do it at a lower cost. Mm-hmm. It was sort of like that if you're lucky enough to go to Stanford, you know, pick two of three, sleep, study, fun.
0: Are you saying that we didn't get all three of those things exactly? Well,
1: just to be clear, I didn't go to Stanford. And my view on on healthcare reform and why it was such an important thing and why it's still playing out in the marketplace, in my opinion, is we're actually starting to see bits and parts of each of those aims come to fruition. I thought the biggest flaw in Obamacare was that it was going to cost too much money. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I thought that cost was going to be the big flaw because there were no cost controls. And in fact, the payers solved for that. So there has been cost containment in the industry, both on the drug side and on the medical side. The cover more people bit didn't go as well as planned. Not as many people are covered. There's still a large population of people who are not covered in the US.
0: But many millions more, just not as many. We did go down a little bit.
1: Right. I would have thought that we would have had more coverage. It's just the coverage is the wrong term. So the piece of it where how many people are underinsured? And now this is a bit for the inside baseball of it that you know better than me. So for those playing along at home, uh, Jeff is himself an access consultant, and now he's sort of an expert on patient coverage. But my theory on it, Jeff, is that more people are in quotation, I'm using air quotes on the radio, covered, but that that coverage is lousy and lousier than when Obamacare started. So if you go back 10 years ago, coverage in the United States would have been better. And 10 years prior to that, it would have been even better.
0: Well, it was more have-its than have-nots, to be fair, right? Coverage is better for a good commercial plan 10 years ago, but there were ones on essentially junk insurance, insurance that didn't really cover much.
1: Right. And now I'm not even sure what a good commercial plan means, right? That's fair too. Yeah.
0: Cadillac, what Cadillac are you referencing exactly? We
1: just got rid of all the Cadillacs, like done, problem solved. No one's going to hit the Cadillac tax because no one has good coverage, right? Yeah. So, That's the bit of it that I think the coverage has been a real disappointment because more people are technically covered, but I think the quality of coverage was lousier. And I don't think that was the goal of Obamacare. And then the cost has actually been maybe the bit we'll talk about the most today. That's been good. And then with better outcomes, I think absolutely not. That's the piece that's a complete failure. There's no indication that we're getting better, healthier outcomes in the healthcare system. So I think we got the bit that I thought we wouldn't get at, which would have been cost controls. I thought that costs would have risen. Costs have really been quite tame.
0: I think that would surprise most people seeing the industry from the outside, but the two of us were following along on how costs like pharma costs are going up, and they're actually not ticking up all that much when you look at the net basis, what they actually get paid.
1: Right. It's such a good point, and it's not out there enough. So the case in point that I cite on it is the drug trend report from ESI or CVS, whichever one of them put it out. I
0: think it was the ESI one.
1: Right. And that was 0.4% on the drug side. And then on the medical cost side, not from ESI, I think from PwC, they had data showing 5.9% on the medical side. On both medical costs and on the pharmacy side, 10 years ago, we we're well into double digits mm-hmm. and both have come down. And I think if you asked or surveyed Americans, and maybe we should do this, Jeff, survey hundred random people and ask them what they think medical cost is in terms of growth rate relative to before. And I don't think people would get it right. I really am surprised by how little growth there has been in cost. Mm. I was not surprised on the pharmacy side because that's kind of where the dirt in my fingernails is. I know that that market's getting tougher and tighter. Yeah. But I'm really surprised on the medical side. And I really don't know what's causing that. So I'd like to learn more about that. But where we stand today is Americans aren't getting healthier as a result of how our system is operating. Americans are exposed to more cost through their coverage. And the cost of providing coverage in quotation marks has been pretty under control.
0: Been pretty under control. Interesting. I know that one of the things that we hear from clients, they're concerned about potential changes to government controls. And we heard a lot of noise, I'd say probably a year ago, that things were changing, going to change any day they're going to change didn't happen. I don't see the political will right now. Maybe things will change with political change.
1: Right. So a year ago, you are talking about the safe harbor.
0: Yeah, which I don't know that everybody that listens to this knows what safe harbor is and what changed or what was going to change.
1: Yeah. And didn't. The safe harbor was a bit, for those who don't follow the inside baseball of it, there's some very important protections that ensure that there are safe harbors so that exchange of funds doesn't lead to a prescribing impact. And one could extrapolate then that a formulary in and of itself would violate that safe harbor, meaning that just because a large payer creates a formulary and does so in exchange for a discount, that you could perceive that those discounts are being passed on to physicians, which they're not. They're being passed on to employers.
0: Yeah. And the discounts we're talking about here are discounts from a pharma company is paying rebates. They're paying money, real money, to different insurance companies in return, in express return, for being on their formulary in a Ab- good place.
1: Absolutely. And so there's a bit of regulation, I suppose, that says that there's a safe harbor that says that those discounts are entirely legal. Those discounts allow for a product to have a list price and then have a net price and then the exchange of funds between the pharma company and the organization that builds the formulary. And so there was legislation to actually remove that safe harbor, which would have made it illegal for pharma manufacturers to discount their drugs through a secondary rebate. And then what would have ended up happening then is that companies would have lowered their list prices. And that was really a theme of last year. And then that will for that went away. I think the will for that went away for one easy reason, which is that the CBO put out there that if that were to happen, the industry would have made... I think it was half a trillion more. It was a large sum They were going to make a
0: lot more money. Yeah. Yeah. So the Congressional Budget Office made a ruling, is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, the CBO sort of scratched the record, the dance is over, unspiked the punch and said, guys, we're going to continue to allow pharma to make their drugs less pricey if they choose to do so.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the things that wouldn't be obvious, I think, from the outside, on the face of it, a secret deal, confidential deal between a pharma company and an insurance company feels really creepy, but that means that somebody is paying- Money That is now eventually has to come and helps the profits of the insurance company. And when that helps the profits of the insurance company, then they can offer lower cost plans to patients. I mean, it eventually does get to patients.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. That's the bit of the logic that did make some sense from all this inside baseball, which is that had the safe harbor been removed, patients would have been less exposed to cost. So one of the disappointing elements of the safe harbor going away is that patients were going to be a beneficiary because high list prices hurt patients full stop.
0: They do. Yeah.
1: And that's certainly not good. So there needs to be something done to address that. The addressment of that is that in places, there are assistance programs that get to patients, and then there's other places where they don't reach patients. So we missed an opportunity to make progress. I think that removal of the safe harbor would have been a long-run best interest of the industry.
0: One of the things that I think that many in the industry hope for, and many patients I would think hope for, is that copay assistance, this idea that a pharma company can help pay down your and my copay, at the pharmacy counter, that that could come to Part D, to Medicare. And it's just not there now.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. And at some point, uh, we don't talk politics in these, but that feels like a nonpartisan bit of this, which I still don't understand. Like, I could explain how copay insistence would be defined as an inducement and therefore why it's illegal in Part D and not illegal in commercial. But I don't understand for the life of me why you just wouldn't create a safe harbor around that. Yeah. Uh, for patients and allow that gap to be plugged and allow older folks to be able to get the copay assistance that would help them.
0: Yeah. If you're in the pharma side, pharma wants to pay this money. They want to pay the money. They want to get the price down for patients. And it would take the heat off pharma, frankly. So there's every incentive there to do this. It's partially because people are nice people and they want to have patients pay less, but it's also so that patients can afford to buy the drug.
1: Right. And to that bit about outcomes, I think that there's been a couple of interesting pilots that have gone on on that. There are some companies that are looking into piloting approaches through the CMMI groups, the Center for Medicare Medicaid Innovation, that would allow for this. And I think that there's people who are throwing rocks at the windows, but the timing is bad in an hmm. election year. And I think that's just a bit of policy where it's common sense. Yeah. And it should just be bipartisan. Just get it done and find a way that you could help allow copay assistance for government channels. I still can't exactly figure out why we don't allow for that.
0: And that one, I think, actually is bipartisan. I don't know from the Democrat side of the table whether or not there's anything against that, but it seems logical that you'd want to do that. And it expressly is part of the Trump administration. It was part of Azar's report for the industry.
1: I'm yet to see the stakeholder that doesn't benefit from it. I think we're at the point where you've set really high discounts in Medicare D. So the precedents are there Medicare D, so we're talking about the 2003 passage, is a very successful program. It's hard to find people who agree on Obamacare, and it's hard to find people who disagree that Medicare Part D was a good idea that pays for itself and is in the best interest of the country and people and patients and all that good stuff.
0: Paying for prescription drugs for Medicare patients.
1: Exactly. We're going from 2009 now to 2003 and the look back at the policy environment. And this year's all about policy. That's sort of the big change of where we are in terms of the payer power. I think everyone's sort of holding their breath till the election to see what will happen. But real sad that that hasn't just taken place. Everybody agrees that Part D was a good idea. Everyone agrees that it worked. So what could be done for that? I hope someone picks up your podcast, Jeff, and just says, you know, in the next 10 months, we should just allow for that to take place. It would be a good outcome. That
0: would be great if we can get there.
1: I would bet against it.
0: Well, the payer power part of it, what constituency doesn't want to have patient copays paid by pharma companies, it's insurance companies. They're the ones that find it to be quote unquote unfair.
1: I kind of wonder though, that if you got the guts of an insurance company, I mean, down to the actuary level, I'd love to meet an actuary who would say at these places and with the market under control, I buy that a little bit more and I'm sure that it's true. You're absolutely right. That is the stakeholder who says, wait, it's not so fast. But I kind of wonder in a stable marketplace, which D is at this point, Medicare D, all right, you got costs under control. They're not growing. You kind of got the bits and parts figured out. What would be the impact in terms of induced demand? I don't think it's very high. I think it's doable and achievable.
0: I know we talked about this on a previous podcast when we talked to two people from Adheris about when patients pay less, they pay nothing. They might pick up three months worth of prescriptions. If they pay 40 $50, they might pick up a month fewer prescriptions. So there is an effect there. The question, if you're on the insurer side, is do you want the patient to pick up the extra month of prescription? And they may not.
1: Right. And that's the bit of it where I think we're close and we should try to pilot some stuff. So let's dig into that. That's a super good question. Maybe what you could do is let the reins off of this by allowing Part D plans to selectively, at their discretion, choose. To allow for copay assistance mm. on selected drug categories. I'll buy it. There's probably some drugs that aren't paying their own way. What died when payers got powerful? is having the conversation on value. On a formulary, now, if you read CVS's or ESI's formula, it just tells you the drugs that are on formulary. It doesn't tell you the drugs are on formulary because they're paying their own way onto the formulary because of cost offsets.
0: Yeah, they're drugs that save medical benefits, say somebody doesn't have to get a liver transplant, therefore you put on an HCV drug that we talked about, I think, on the very first time that we talked.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah. And there's not enough attention paid to which drugs are there because you have to have a formulary, which meets USP guidance, and therefore they're just there because they have good negotiators on their deals desk. Right, yeah. Versus drugs where, They may also have to have a good deals desk, and those drugs are also paying their own way because when those drugs are on formulary, costly medical procedures aren't taking place. What I'd love to see is if the government could just allow for payers then, the Part D plans themselves, the people who are administering the benefit, to make a choice and allow the copay assistance for the drugs that paid their own way. This would be an interesting connotation because at this point, you can't tell the difference between which drugs are there because they're checking a box. Which drugs are there because they're paying their own way? It's a very binary sort of value framework that we would be implementing, but it would have a material communicative effect in terms of saying, hey, that drug is there because it's saving on medical costs. And when you see that, you're going to see the crowd behavior and I think some of the physicians who are watching what they're prescribing in terms of how it impacts systems, I think you'd have a really interesting thing happen there.
0: Last question. I think the last time we talked, we were waiting to see what would happen as two very large mergers in the industry played out. So these were mergers that included companies that had a PBM, a pharmacy benefit manager, that acts more like a middle person and they tend to control their pharmacy costs and they tend to be very, very good negotiators versus... An MCO, a managed care organization, which is more of a traditional insurance, that they're on the hook for things like medical costs, and they act more, I don't know like England. They're choosing to make decisions based on what costs more and what doesn't cost more between a pharmacy and medical. But they also weren't the greatest negotiators always in the world. But they would have more products than formulary sometimes because they could see the benefit of having more products than formulary. When you put those two things together, it's not peanut butter and chocolate and you suddenly have Reese's. It's two very, very different organizations and we didn't know who was going to win. So, who won? I mean, these are CVS, ESI, and their merger partners.
1: That's a huge We might spend some good time on this one. So a world without PBMs. One of the big things since we last did the previous payer power is that I think that was either just happening or hadn't happened just yet. CVS buys Aetna and Cigna merges with ESI. So in that process, you don't really have a standalone PBM that's only thinking about pharmacy benefits.
0: Yeah, they kind of went away.
1: Right, Because Prime T is the collection of blues that have to think about both by definition. So they're thinking about both sides of the ledger. Some of the other PBMs have been acquired away, but we really don't have a standalone PBM. So what has that meant? I think it's too soon to tell in terms of who's going to win. The early returns, everyone's going to claim that the PBM bits of the business are making the calls and the decisions.
0: Yeah, I'm seeing that. I'm, I'm seeing decisions going centrally and not with the old MCO people.
1: I know you are. And I'm seeing that too. But for how long? So then I want to go back to the data we referenced earlier in terms of medical costs and pharmacy costs. There's still more waste in the medical cost balloon. The growth in spend on the pharmacy side reaches effectively zero and has. And on the medical cost side, it's still humming along at six and was higher. So you still have more inefficient prices on the medical side. And as you might think too, nothing goes generic in medical cost land.
0: No, I haven't seen the generic doctor yet.
1: Right, we haven't seen that. So if nothing's going generic over there and things are going generic to sort of fix up the pharmacy side, I'm still optimistic on those mergers that while the early innings show the pharmacy sides really making a lot of the decisions at those organizations, their clients are employers now, full stop. They are not health plans. And when the employer or the funder has to think about 80% of their costs being driven by medical costs, and 20% by pharmacy. They're going to force those organizations to focus on the four out of five dollars that are still happening on that side of the fence. There's hope for cost-effective medications and for cost-effective interventions. And then there's going to be a battle for anybody who has competition. And I think that's sort of the marketplace that we're going to play out and see.
0: Well, I think we'll leave it there. Keith Kelly, thanks for joining me again on the Senior Health Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. That's all for today's episode of the Sineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart, from Sineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Sineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.